being Muslim in Silicon Valley, even back then, and I'm talking 20 years ago, um, but even more so now, it's almost like a competitive advantage. From Toledo Society, you're listening to The Transit Lounge, where we track the journeys of people who've had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. I'm Mohammed Zad, and today on the show, Shahid Amanullah, CTO and co-founder of Affinis Labs. So guys, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I'm probably shooting myself in the foot here and giving the tricks of the trade away, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm fairly good at keynote presentations. Yes, I know it probably doesn't sound like a revelation, but when I say I'm good at keynotes, like seriously, I have enough business ideas to last five lifetimes. And there's not a month that passes without me whipping up a keynote and presenting a business idea. And for most of my life, however, I've had two often opposing trajectories, business on one hand, and social activism on the other. And every time I seem to dig my heels in a business, I'm often distracted with a social mission. And vice versa, every time I'm involved in a social project, I think to myself, I need money to support my cause, I need to be in business. Our guest today is no stranger to the Muslim media scene, and you've probably heard him on several notable Muslim podcasts. Shahid Amanullah is my window into the world of startups, and in particular ones coming out of the valley. Now, normally on the Transit Lounge, we go fairly deep into the journeys of our guests, their upbringing, etc. We do a bit of that today, but mainly we wanted to hone in on one main concept, and that is, what are the traits of a successful Muslim entrepreneur? That is, what is the world missing if there are less Muslim entrepreneurs? We start the interview with Shahid's entry into the startup space in the valley. We talk his most notable projects in Zabiha, his upcoming $250 million Muslim VC fund, and his most recent and startup Zakatify. Enjoy the interview. So I was just very fortunate to be there at the right time in the right place. I actually then taught myself how to code because I wanted to be a part of this. I wanted to jump into the startup system. And, wow. and by 1998, I finally convinced a company that had no business hiring me to hire me as a creative director to help, you know, and it was a $40 million venture-backed company. What was the company? It was called Yak.com. It was a, it was a guide to online events. And, you know, in, in, in today's world, it never would have gotten funded, but there was a lot of really stupid money at so the what, time. So you just knocked on the door and said... Yeah, I just knew people who were starting to kind of vent, you know, get into the space, and I knew one of the co-founders, and so I just did what I could to, like, prove myself useful to him. And... That happens at a time where all these companies were flush with money and they just needed to find talent quickly. So like I found myself in this space and this company, it went under in, in the next year or two, but I learned so much from that that actually I had with uh, six or seven other people an idea on a napkin and we sat down in front of investors and walked away with one and a half million dollars. And it was crazy because back then you could do that. You could have like an idea on a napkin and people would just (laughs) fork out money. What I didn't realize, but I realize now is that Muslims in Silicon Valley had been there for a long time. A lot of the very early pioneers in Silicon Valley were Muslim. And we were able to raise our money from, from Muslim investors. We were able to establish ourselves in a Muslim-led incubator. And that's news to me. Like, like, yeah. like who? Like who? So, so, so the person that really believed in us most was a gentleman named Salam Qureshi. He lives, he lives on literally Sand Hill Road, which is the, the road where all the VCs are. <laughs> and he and another gentleman named Miriam Ron, who has like 200 patents to his name. And this is these are people, again, who are like, 
part of the original crew of Silicon Valley, um, they believed in us. And they, 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 they not only gave us their money, but they gave us their time and their attention. And they, they shepherded us through the system. And this all happened before the dot-com crash. So the dot-com mm. crash was early 2001. So by the time this is like 1999, 2000, we were doing this. And... I learned so much about not just the process of raising that money. I mean, well, I didn't really learn a lot there because that was easy. The money came easily. What I did learn was the process of hiring people, hiring talent, managing talent, creating a business plan, creating a revenue model. All that had to happen really, really quickly. Mm. And there are, there are many networks that you could use to tap into to find the answers. And what even back then, and, and it's, it's more the case now, the Muslim network in Silicon Valley is a small network, but it's very easily navigable. So if I needed extra investment, if I needed talent, if I needed openings to companies, just one or two degrees of separation through the Muslim network in Silicon Valley, I was able to find of trust. Yeah, and and and, and trust is what did it. My, so my first company that I had was half Muslim, half African American founders, and what was really interesting is that my African American co-founders, um, they you know they they saw us mining this Muslim network, and they were just in shock. They were amazed because they're actually you know they're, 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 there's similarly a small number of African Americans yeah. in. Silicon Valley, but that network wasn't as easily navigable as the Muslim network. So we really mined the Muslim network. And that's what got us a lot of our early successes. So can you be in Silicon Valley and be a, a real practicing Muslim? Is, is so here's the thing. Being Muslim in Silicon Valley, even back then, and I'm talking 20 years ago, um, but even more so now, it's almost like a competitive advantage. You know, there's very few successful companies in Silicon Valley that don't have like brown at the top at some level, mm. you know, or, you know, I think the, the, the statistic is something like 40% of, of companies in Silicon Valley are founded by by immigrants, and a lot of these immigrants are primarily like South Asian or or East Asian, or um, you know the Muslim component of that is very deep. And and uh, at least in my experience, I know some people, some other people have had other negative experiences, but in my experience, you know, you were able to open doors pretty much everywhere, mm. um, and we st- we are still doing that today. We're That's still amazing. mining our networks there. And it's just you know I, I know it's not the case in other fields, but in in technology. You know, it's an, it's very natural to see Muslims there, and people expect to see it. It's not it's not something that's weird. And um, did you identify as a Muslim uh, early on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as a matter of fact, while I'm doing these startups, the motivating question for me was, how can we take this tool called the internet and apply it to our Muslim life? to reinforce our Muslim identity, to make it easier to be Muslim in the West. Mm. So like uh, my head was flooded with these kind of like questions. And so out of that in 1998, so when I was, when I was doing these startups in Silicon Valley, you work late hours, you do, you want to go out to restaurants yeah. to eat. So I actually put up a webpage of halal restaurants that were in Silicon Valley because I wanted to share it with my other buddies, you know, in my network. And we, we would go eat, we would go meet up and trade stories and stuff like that. And what I realized when I was, because I was a total geek back then, looking at the traffic <laughs> to this page is like, I just put it up there almost like a public kind of notepad for my yeah. friends. But I noticed that people were starting to use it. Awesome. And it seemed really strange to me. So I thought, well, let me just try this. And I threw up a website and I populated it with maybe 200 restaurants. You're talking Zabiha, of yeah. course. Yeah. And, and that was in 1998. And within a few years, it had restaurants from all over the world. So like by the time, you know, like within five years, it was a global thing. Europe, Australia, South Africa, you know, it was, it was everywhere. And it was kind of the first kind of crowdfunded thing. Now, a really important lesson that I want to tell people is that 
I created Zabiha. Zabiha is the second oldest restaurant guide of any kind on the web. And I created it six years before Yelp, which begs the question, why didn't I just create Yelp? Absolutely. So so this is like... That's kept you up that night. It, it has. And the thing is like, I don't want to leave. I think there's something very special about cultivating the Muslim market, cultivating Muslim entrepreneurs, digging into our heritage and our values and our talent to find new you know, tools to use. But we can't ignore the bigger picture. And so I, I, I like to go by a motto, buy Muslims for everybody. Okay. Um, I, I agree with that. Yes. I do. But sometimes if you try to be for everybody, yes. you lose that competitive advantage, you lose that positioning, and it's important yeah. to be authentic to your oh, absolutely. audience. You know? So there's a way to balance that, right? And so there's a couple of companies that I've had the good fortune to work with that I think do that really well. So uh, there's one company in the U.S., um, called American Halal. I'm a founding board member of that company. Mm. And they are now one of the largest ethnic f- food lines in America in, in 10,000 grocery stores around America. Mm. And they're the first national mainstream halal brand, mm-hmm. but only... Very you know, explicitly halal. Explicitly as well. halal. But only like less than 5% of the, from what I understand, less than 5% of their customers are Muslim. So... They don't compromise on the halalness, but they define it in a way that's universally appealing. So when you look at the back of the package, what is halal? Halal is a 1,400-year-old ethical tradition that teaches respect for animals. And these are universal values, right? So these have meaning for the 95% of customers that buy it, right? And so if you can create something that that is honest to who you are, but is done in such a way that other people can use it. That's, I think, the, the happy medium. You're not tapping into a tiny percentage of the market, you're tapping into 100% of the market, so that enhances your value as you know, from your bottom line. But uh, you're also showing the greater society that we have something to offer them. Absolutely. So your, um, your kind of journey to Silicon Valley wasn't exactly a linear one. No, no, you know, no. We have a saying in Australia, uh, I've been everywhere, man. It's yeah. actually a song. Yeah. And, and when it comes to your career, like, and I say this it's been a, a big, compliment. It's been a big walkabout is what it's been. <laughs> no, but seriously, like you were a senior manager at several engineering firms. Uh, you did incredible projects in California, cell phone towers in Toronto, Houston, San Francisco. Yeah. You were marketing manager of the World yeah. Bank yeah, um, and a real estate developer in Austin, a diplomat in the, in the State <laughs> Department. Like, for God's sake, tell me, how the heck did you do it so all? What's really, why? What's really <laughs> interesting is that, you know, when people uh, approach me and ask me, how do I get into the startup scene? One of the things I do tell them is that if you, are, if you have a kind of traditional standard job, you know, keep that. Because, you know, there's no better way to recover from a failed startup than to just go into a traditional job, lick your wounds, and then come back out. So all these different things I did were in between startups. Mm-hmm. So I'd raise money, I'd do a startup, I'd either sell it or I'd fail at it. And I've, and, you know, I've, I've failed way more companies than I've succeeded at. But by going back into these other positions, you can kind of recover from that mm-hmm. um, instead of going right back out and, and seeking money. You, how do you redefine yourself, reinvent yourself for, for a World Bank? It's not like you're knocking on to KFC and saying, <laughs> I want to fry chips. You know, what's really interesting is that what's, what's happened over the course of my career is that companies that are not in the tech space realize the importance of having tech people in their space. So in all of these cases, what they wanted, they wanted a startup-y guy in their system. (laughs) So for example, like, you know, when I was recruited by Secretary Clinton to be in the State Department, the reason was is that they wanted to create a startup kind of environment within the State Department and create institutions there that would not stay at the State Department, that would actually leave with me. But like, 
you know, here's a pot of money, here's a mission, go create something without the red tape and see if we can do something better than we used mm. to do it. It was, it was irresistible to me because a foreign policy is, is, is also a deep interest of mine. So I said, you know something, I'm going to put, I actually had two startups I had put on hold um, while I did that because I just couldn't resist. Mm. And within the State Department, I created these two institutions. One was a social entrepreneurship program for global Muslim youth communities, just teaching them how to be social entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs. Amazing. That was Generation Change. And another one was a social media training program that was Viral Peace. Both of those I took with me when I left. One got put in an NGO called the U.S. Institute of Peace, where it continues to operate today. And the other went to Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, where it continues to operate today. Congratulations. And so it was a great way to kind of leverage that kind of power of government and the money of government to create something interesting that didn't have the pitfalls of government. So tell me about Affinis Labs, because that's come up a couple of times in the yeah. conversation. What are you trying to achieve? So Affinis Labs is kind of like the culmination of all of these projects I've done my whole life. Um, what I've found is that over the last 20 years, people have approached me wanting to be in what is now called the global Islamic economy for advice on how to create a business, mm. a sustainable business that addresses this increasingly homogenous global market of 1.5 billion Muslims. Mm. And so, so many, that happened so many times that I, I thought, let's create a, a, an entity that can, can be a clearinghouse for funding and mentorship and ideas sure. to help that group of people. Because there's a lot of pitfalls, this kind of global Islamic economy. Um, there's two ways to create a business that caters to Muslims. One is a very productive way, and one is a very, I think, unproductive way. So the one that I told you that works was, you know, that is reflected by Saffron Road and Verona and some of these other great companies, is that buy Muslims for everybody model. Mm -hmm. Create something that has value for greater society that leverages what's special about being Muslim. Mm -hmm. Because we have something to offer. I mean, if you look at Indonesia, the fact that you have a country, country of 300 million people that became Muslim on the strength of Muslim entrepreneurs mm. who impressed these people with their character and, their yeah. character and their wares and, and whatnot. There must be something there. I want to re-tap into that, into that ethic. And I believe companies like Saffron Road and Verona and LaunchGood, for example, are, yeah, doing absolutely. It, are absolutely doing that. They're tapping into something that's unique about us, our affinity toward each other, our passion for helping people, our passion for showcasing our identity in really modern ways. They've done a great job of that. The flip side of that, which is actually something I try to steer away from, is, is kind of like a nanny model. It's this idea that let's take something great from the West, let's cripple it and give it to Muslims because we want to shelter them from what's bad in the world. Mm, like so like a Muslim Facebook. Exactly. So in my calculations, by the way, that's a great example. About $100 million around the world has been spent on trying to create a Muslim alternative to Facebook. Yeah. So, um, How much? 100 million. That's incredible. Um, in 2008, I was talking to Chris Cox at Facebook, and he said something really interesting. And we were talking about discussing this phenomenon. And he said, it was great. He said, Muslims around the world have already chosen their Facebook. It's called Facebook. <laughs> and so the idea is like, you know, Muslim consumers are like any other consumers, right? They're not going to accept a substandard product. Yeah. Just because it's Muslim. Just because it's Muslim, yeah. exactly. I mean, those days have come, long, come and gone. I mean, now even like in the halal food space. They want gourmet burgers. They don't want just like, you know, street kebabs and stuff like that. They want they want something that reflects their hybrid identity and that and they're, you know, Muslims are going to spend a thousand dollars on an iPhone. You know, they're not cheap when it comes to things that are quality. So give them something of quality and they'll buy it. And so I try to steer people away from that other model because I don't think it's very self-serving. I don't think building walled gardens for Muslims and keeping us away from society is really the way forward. It's, it's bad for business and I think it's bad, you know, in terms of our soul. 
So, so Affinis Labs has been created to do that. So if Affinis Labs did everything right over the next 10 years, yeah. what would happen? So that 10-year plan has been compressed into like a three-year plan because we are, inshallah, 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 and I know a lot of people are waiting on this and I'm disappointed, I'm sorry that it's taken so long, but we're inshallah on the cusp of launching a $250 million fund. This is the Malaysian fund. Yes, but here's the interesting, here's the interesting story. Why is it taking so long? When we launched the fund, when we announced the fund, our main partners were Malaysian uh, venture capital, MavCap mm. specifically, with some Gulf money thrown in. Um, by the time we launched this fund, it'll be nearly all American mainstream money. That's incredible. And the story of why that happened is also the story of the problems that we face. Is that even though we have all these resources, we still struggle to put them together in a way that's cooperative that's mutually beneficial. We still tear each other down. We still get in each other's way. We're still jealous of each other's success. These are come, these come from our trauma, right? Our, mm. We are a traumatized community over the last 200 years. <laughs> and, and, and because of that, we, we, we can't get to a place of confidence. And the number one driver of successful business is confidence. And, and, and when I look at Muslim companies, like the biggest mistake that Muslim companies do is that they think small. I can't possibly be a big multinational. I can maybe I'll just be a small company. And they're with satisfied with mediocre. And they're satisfied with that. Exactly. Because they don't believe that they can do any bigger than that. And so a lot of my work is just getting people to believe that they can do something big. What I tell people now is I said, if you can't envision your company having a hundred million in revenue, why should I help you? And I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. I'm trying to get you to think more about yourself. You, if you can't envision yourself being in that, then you need to go back and really sit and think about what it is you have to offer the world and what your talents are. Because, you know, there's the people I'm, I'm talking to, usually I believe they can do it. I just want them to believe it. Yeah, sure. So, like, um, there, there are, there's a plethora of Muslim entrepreneurs who don't share the same philosophy. They don't do it because they're Muslim. They no. They're trying no. to support. They're just, they're just doing it because they want to be, a, a, you know, an entrepreneur. Right. Like, what's your message to them? So, the, one of the messages I give people is that, if your goal is to make money, then, you know, I wish you the best of luck, but there's nothing in it for me, right? I mean, I can invest in you and make money along with you, but like that, I could do that anywhere, right? If you're a Muslim entrepreneur and you're coming to the table, you should embed social impact into your business model in a way that is consistent with our heritage and our history and our values. And my helping you will have not just a financial return, but it'll have a social return, Right. We've talked we talk about social impact businesses and social impact businesses are great. I think Muslims can do it in a, in a, in a very unique way. But what, why do this? I mean, what if you did all of that and yeah. you have all the young entrepreneurs who are Muslim who care about social good? Yeah. You do it for 10 years. Yeah. What's what's the end in mind? The world is changing very rapidly. And the last recession taught me that there will never be enough jobs for people. Because what happened? What did companies do after the big, the last, the great recession? They found out how to do more with less. And when their profits came back, they didn't go out and hire more people because they see hiring people as a liability. Sure. Let's, let's get the robots. Let's get the drones. Let's get automation. Let's outsource. Let's do all these things. And, you know, let's keep a distributed model where we bring in someone for contract and then, and then shove them out the door and we don't mm -hmm. need them. So if we do not, if we, if we accept the premise that there will never be enough jobs for people, we have two choices. We either accept the idea of a permanent global underclass, or we teach people to take their own economic future in their own hands. And entrepreneurship is that empowerment vehicle. Now, people today, again, this confidence thing, they don't, I can't start a company. Who am I? I'm a, I've never done this before. I've thought about this before. You know, 200 years ago, everyone was an entrepreneur. People didn't go out and apply for jobs or whatever. They just, they went to the farms, they farmed something, they sold it at the market, or they learned to trade and they sold it 
with our mark. Everyone was an entrepreneur. It is in our blood as human beings. It is in our heritage as Muslims. Absolutely. And so it, the more we can teach people that they can do this, even if they're literally creating their own job, then we can forestall this future, which I don't think is good for humanity. And I think is not also, I think we are called upon as Muslims to not tolerate that kind of future. So tell me about Zakatify. So Zakatify is the latest kind of brainchild that's come out of our ecosystem. Zakat is, is, is an incredibly powerful tool that Muslims have. It is one, it is the one of the five pillars that's outward facing, not internal facing. Mm. So it's, 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 it's at this really high level in our religion. We, we practice it with fairly little changes in the last 1400 years. You know, we, we, we realize we have an obligation. We guess at how much we need. We don't know who to give to. We'll just find the nearest charity that'll take our money and we throw it and we, sure. there's no accountability. There's no creed. There's no creativity about how we're deploying this. If we, if, if 2.5% of our collective wealth was, was deployed efficiently and creatively, mm. we really could impact things. Zakatify is a, is an answer to that. So it is a for-profit company, much like all the other companies that we deal with, because I believe that for-profit companies can generate if they're successful, they can generate goodwill in ways that nonprofits can't do. And they're held to higher account. Exactly. They're held to higher account. The market validates them. They don't have to uh, be hand-to-mouth. And they can, be, they can invest in themselves and be sustainable and grow. So Zakatify is, is, to be very simple, it's an app where you add payment options, credit card or, well, credit card is coming, but right now PayPal account. You search through thousands of Zakat-eligible charities that we've vetted that are approved, that have got their paperwork in order, and that are categorized in in one of the eight categories of zakat mm. and one of about 150 different other uh, classifications. Mm-hmm. You can search through them. You can make an immediate donation, or you can add a group to your favorites. If you add a group to your favorites, and we have a zakat calculator in the app, once you agree on a, on a goal that you want for the, for the year, we can take a portion of your goal every month and distribute it equally to the charities in your favor. So you can diversify your impact. Exactly. And so you can search for media, you can search for environment, you can search for a particular country, you can search for refugees, you can, whatever it is. Find all these charities. So it's a discovery tool. So we can, we can broaden it from you know, the, 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 the few things that come up to people's minds right now. And, the, and these smaller charities that are zakat eligible, which are starving, get some exposure. So the goal of this, and we're launching in the US right now, and then we'll very quickly come to uh, Canada, UK, and Australia right after that. And by the way, this is an ex- this is a partnership that we've done with PayPal. PayPal had to commit engineering resources and build a whole new layer of technology to power what we're doing because this does not exist for anyone. I'm going to um, ask you a set of quick questions. Mm-hmm. What are two do's and two don'ts? Do believe in yourself. Do believe that you can do it. Don't think that people are smarter than you or more capable than you. Sure. Do treat everyone you interact with ethically and responsibly. Do not climb over each other to get to the top. It will come back and bite you. Some of the biggest deals that I'm signing right now, I can trace that deal back decades to a kind thing I did for somebody that I didn't expect a return on. So there's no reason, I mean, people, people get on capitalism's case all the time because they see it as soulless and, 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 and unethical. Mm. I think it's just capitalism is an empty vessel. It, it takes the shape of the people that are in it. And if you are ethical people within that space and you are thoughtful and kind, you will, you will generate that around you. So be kind to people going up and believe that you can do it. Those are the two do's. And two don'ts? I'll, I'll tell you one right now, and, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs are not going to be happy I say this, and it also seems weird coming from me, you know, saying that we're going to be raising all this money to give you. Don't be too quick to take investment. Why? 
too many people see investment as free money. And it's not free money. I'll give you a perfect example. One of the first startups that I did, I actually was able to sell. But the investors had guaranteed in their paperwork a three times return on their investment before I would see a dime. And I can introduce you to plenty of entrepreneurs who have sold multi-million dollar companies who walked away with nothing because the investor usually protects themselves and they protect their multiple exit before you see anything. Now, our fund, inshallah, we're not going to do that. We want to apply those same ethics to ourselves. Absolutely. We, want to, we, don't, we don't want to snuff out a young entrepreneur and take every dime and leave them you know, bleeding. We want to empower them because if they sell a company and go on to the next one, we want to be part of that one too. Absolutely. We want to cultivate a relationship. Fair enough. So that's, a, that's one don't. God, I'm trying to think of another don't. I'm always about dues. Um, don't sell out. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 that's a very general thing. I'll say, I'll, I know, you're saying this, this is actually good because I actually have seen this as well. If you're going to be a Muslim entrepreneur and you're going to brand yourself as somebody who's bringing a higher level of ethical awareness then, then don't cheat your employees and don't cut corners with your product and don't do all these things that people do when they're scared and, they're, and they, they want to get ahead. I see it way too often. I see Muslim companies stealing from other Muslim companies. I see them hacking into other people's programs. I see them bad-mouthing each other behind their backs. All these really bad qualities. We are saying that we're part of an ethical system mm. and you're, you're, you're completely flipping that in your practice. All right, a few quick ones. You're the Imam on the 27th night in Mecca and you have the chance to make one dua. What is that dua? My dua for Muslims around the world is to be kind to one another. It's easy to say that Islamophobia is, is breathing down our backs and there are people that hate us. But even if all those people were gone, there's so much infighting between us. There's so much. You're getting emotionally. Yeah, because I, 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 it's frustrating. Like, you know, I run companies that cater to Muslims, and my non-Muslim and my non-Muslim customers treat me better than my Muslim customers, flat out. And it's really frustrating because I believe in my community, I believe in my faith, and when you see that happening again and again and again, you start to question: What is it that our faith is teaching us? Hmm. Now. Uh, the bigger picture is that, again, we are a traumatized people and we yeah. act in traumatized ways. But I would like for everyone to summon the will to just get a grip, be nice, be kind, be ethical, go into the system realizing that you have trust. You, you, have a tr you took your investor's money, you have a trust. You, your, your, your customers are getting something from you. They're trusting that it is a quality. Mm. People are trusting you. This is the ethic that created Indonesia. All right. If you didn't have to work, what would you be doing? If I didn't have to work, I would, you know, alhamdulillah, I have stumbled onto the job that I would be happy to work out for the rest of my life. If I had all the money in the world, I would still be doing what I'm doing. I want to help other people start their businesses and get them funded and get them supported and have them shine so that other Muslims can be inspired and that people who are not Muslim can say, these are people that are giving something to humanity. That's all I want to do for the rest of my life. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you be? If I could do it really my own way, I would live in a different country for one or two months out of the out of the year, and I would just I would probably hop between Washington D.C., Austin, Texas, um, Berkeley, Amsterdam, Sydney. Sydney. So Sydney's definitely there. And um, goodness gracious, I don't know where else right now. But those are the ones on top of my okay. list. And a book that you would gift. Oh goodness! Or a book that you've learned the most from. Hmm. Just in my in my own personal work, um, the the the, the four-hour um, work, work week has been really that helped me to cut out a lot of the waste in my day. Fair enough. Ever since reading that, I've become a total minimalist. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Jazakallah khair. 
Hi guys, thanks for listening. Just one last note, the Transit Lounge is part of a podcast network called Toledo Society. If you're keen on finding out more, visit toledosociety.com.